Hello and welcome to the second of Osborne Clark's Energy Innovation podcast series. This is a new podcast looking at the issues and opportunities for innovation in the energy sector as we push to realise our net zero ambitions. My name is Deborah Harvey and I'm an Associate Director in Osborne Clark's Energy Projects team. I also co-lead Osborne Clark's Energy Innovation Group. I'm joined today by Dr Robin Lucas. Robin is Head of Data Science at Open Energy. I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with Open Energy already. Open Energy is an energy technology company which optimizes power from assets such as battery storage, electric vehicles, and hydrogen electrolyzers, as well as offering demand-side response services. In today's session, we'll be discussing optimizing battery storage assets in more detail. The enormous growth in renewables on our system in recent years has provided a significant opportunity for energy storage to balance this this intermittent generation. We're now seeing real developments in battery technology, digitalization and innovation in market access, which is driving the deployment in this space. As a firm, we've been busy for some time supporting clients in all aspects of their battery projects from acquisition through to optimization. And Robin will be sharing some of her practical tips for optimizing a battery during the session today. So Robin, thank you very much for joining me today. I've only touched on this in high level terms, so I think it would be helpful as a starting point if you could please outline your thoughts on the opportunities presented by battery storage in the current market. Hi Debs, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast to start with. Um, yeah, absolutely. So there are plenty of opportunities for batteries at the moment. Um, and that's really why we've seen such a massive growth. Um, so batteries are really good at responding very quickly and very accurately to signals. Um, And they typically can last for an hour, an hour and a half, maybe two hours. So that means they're very good at helping to balance the system in real time. And this is through services uh, that National Grid procure in order to uh, maintain system stability. This is by something called frequency regulation. Uh, So people might have heard of services like frequency response and more lately dynamic containment. And this is trying to Um, combat the reducing inertia of the system due to having lots more renewables online which have less spinning mass Um, and also they are being used more and more in um, somewhere called the balancing mechanism and in traded markets and that's where um, either national grid can uh, dispatch these assets at really short notice in order to, to meet shortfalls Uh, For example, when maybe some forecasted wind is late in arriving Um, or you can find that trading teams can use these assets in order to balance a portfolio, um, particularly when prices are really volatile. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's such a um, a sort of key part of, of 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 batteries, and actually has been one of the challenges I think in terms of the the deployment and uptake that we've seen, or rather one of the delay factors is is getting comfortable with that revenue snack, stack, and I think that's probably caused some. Um, some issues for some of the investors and, and funders in this space because obviously it's so different from you know what we've seen in the renewable space with subsidies and um, long-term offtake contracts. Um, so it has really required that shift in mindset. Um, in terms of the the national grid products and and how the market's made up in this area, um, it, it would be helpful just to understand in a bit more detail how you see the opportunities working there. Up until about November last year um, frequency regulations and dynamic frequency response was the main component of that revenue stack and we saw that a couple of years ago prices were really high and that drove a lot of investment cases for batteries um, going onto the system and then we had efr tenders 
which also drove um, quite a few batteries to be built. But uh, in November, we had an, or October actually, we had a new service come out from National Grid called Dynamic Containment. And we've had Dynamic Containment and that has created a much needed boost to the frequency regulation market because prices are clearing at uh, the price cap, which is at £17 per hour per megawatt. Um, and it's it's got a much higher barrier of entry um, than the, the previous services, particularly dynamic frequency response. And it's really much more focused to large in front of the meter systems because of that high barrier for entry. Um, so, yeah, we, we see the real opportunities at the moment for, for those larger systems in dynamic containment. And then next year, um, National Grid will be bringing out a couple more services as they reform the whole frequency regulation space, which are called dynamic moderation and dynamic regulation. Um, and it kind of remains to be seen exactly what those services will consist of. But for the next six months or so, we really see most profits being in dynamic containment. So if you can get your system in there, then great. And if you can't, um, which a lot of the smaller systems, because there's, there's uh, thresholds on the, the number of megawatts that you need um, per GSP group, it has also inflated the prices in dynamic FFR because it's it's kind of boosted the whole market. So it's been a really good thing for batteries, actually, dynamic containment. Yeah, and, and and actually, you know that that does that the comments you were making around the um the the services that Grid are, are going to be looking to introduce, um and 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 in fact the movement we've seen over the Grid service space over the last few years I suppose does point to, um the need to ensure that your contract is broad in terms of the services that you're you're offering under it or or you're contracting under it, um so that you know you do have that ability to to move between markets depending on what the market's doing. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be different on different days even. Um, so we've been talking really about ancillary services in the in the frequency regulation markets. But we've also seen this year some really good opportunities in the wholesale markets. Yeah. You need to be able to have your contract and the services listed within that contract, which should be quite explicit, need to be flexible enough that you can switch between these different markets on a daily basis. And I think the aggregator needs to be trusted to make those decisions without necessarily having to sort of every day go and contact the asset manager. Are these prices OK? Can we yeah. dip it out? Because that just creates practically some challenges when timescales can be really quite short. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, Robin. And I see why asset owners want visibility. Um, and it's that balance, isn't it, between, you know, visibility and, and awareness of what's going on, but also trusting the the specialist that you're appointing to manage your asset for you um, and, and to enable them to have that flexibility to um, to maximise revenue, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you, you are all on the same page and having making sure the aggregator perhaps has some slice of the pie. So that's where maybe a yeah. revenue sharing option could be good. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's quite an interesting distinction between, you know, existing services. So services that are being contracted on day one, um, which, as you say, the aggregator needs flexibility over. Um, they need to be clear as to what they are and then they need to have the freedom to go and perform those services. And any new services that, you know, like the, the two that you were mentioning that National Grid are going to be introducing, and I'm sure others that we'll see coming through in due course, um, you know, it, it, that that scenario is one where the asset owner it does need opportunity I would imagine to have um, the, the ability to firstly familiarize itself with the service 
um, and also um, and also consent to that service being added to the contract. So um, there's that distinction between existing services where um, the aggregator needs to have the you know the discretion they need, and then future services where the asset owner does need the opportunity to to consent. Yes, because a lot of those services might have all sorts of different implications for things like warranty. Absolutely, and and then you touched on that. Um, that revenue share point. And I think that's one of the key points, certainly for me as a lawyer, when I'm looking at these sorts of arrangements, you know, understanding how that revenue split works, because, you know, this is an area that's so different from the the sort of the PPAs um, that, that we used to see being put in place on the renewable asset side, having this this revenue split and it and the contract being sufficiently transparent that the asset owner can, and, and indeed any funders can get comfortable with how that share works because there's not the the visibility in that split for, from the asset owner's perspective that the the optimizer has so um you know what are your what are your thoughts on on that and you know that that revenue clarity piece yeah it's a really it's a really good point and we've kind of seen things evolve over time as we've kind of learned more um and i think the the best way to do it is to be as simple as possible. Yeah. But otherwise, things can get very complicated very quickly. I mean, you might have some percentage share in one market, another percentage share in another, a different market. Maybe um, the asset manager wants to take control at some period and they don't yeah. want the aggregator to have any percentage share because they're not doing anything for those periods. It can get very complicated very quickly. And I think being as simple as you can be is the way that I have found it works best and it's also easiest to to make the PL for. And and I think another opportunity, and I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on this, certainly it's something I'm seeing a lot more at the moment, is around the opportunity to co-locate um, batteries with existing assets, solar in particular. You know, I, 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 you can really see the opportunity, can't you, in terms of um, solar projects that have probably been built and there's some existing headroom left in the connection. Um, you know, it, it's quite a neat play if you yeah, can make it, it work. It works very nicely, particularly because solar is so repeatable and yeah. sort of forecastable. And for, I don't know, 12 or 18 hours a day, it's not going to be producing anything. And that creates a huge gap in the grid capacity that you could go and do something with a battery for and it's it's really efficient to share those connections yeah um, so yeah we've also seen um a, a number of projects coming through where which are sort of sharing the connection between solar and storage i mean we have a number of behind the meter sites where it's all very much one optimization so yeah. we charge the battery from the solar okay um, yeah with yeah. these new sort of shared connections mm-hmm. they the solar and the storage can be quite distinct Yes. Operated independently, I guess, because they're financed independently. Um, and so you sort of feel like you're slightly missing some of the opportunity there because yes. you're being as efficient as you could be by charging your battery up using the solar. Um, but certainly it does present a huge opportunity for, for rolling out a load more storage without having to build a load more connections. And what would you say are the key challenges um, when looking to optimise a battery? Um I think one of the biggest challenges is really the rate of pace of change um, and having having the flexibility in your technology that can respond to those changing market conditions. Having the flexibility in your tech platform that it can deal with the previous requirements of frequency response, as well as the new requirements, which are so much higher of dynamic containment. So that might be things like having the best metering that you can have 
so that you're able to to meet those like technical requirements for national grid or having um, a big enough system capacity so really future proofing your asset when you build it so it can it can meet the demands of a, a changing system and i think it's um you know a lot of the efr batteries were only 15 minutes in duration and how they will come out three years later having been doing efr and what they'll be able to be used for next is really a, a question that i'd like to see answered because um many of the new services that's that's not going to be any good for and then you've just got this sort of redundant asset sitting there at the start i promised our, our listeners um some some practical tips from you <laughs> on optimizing a battery um and and i'd be grateful if you could um share some of your your top tips for um in particular developers and investors um yeah. that, that are active in this space <laughs> So tip number one, I think, is just to become familiar with the language of the energy system because it is full of acronyms and there are various different players and markets and it's quite complex. So just getting to up to speed with that language of the energy system will make uh, lives a lot easier. And then I think contracting with parties well ahead of time is is really a good idea because it will take a lot longer than it might seem at the outset. And that might be with a system operator or the DNO or doing your registrations or contracting with your aggregator. It could be, I mean, yeah, I guess Deb's you're the, the best person to, to discuss this kind of thing with. But um, having those in place early means you can hit the ground running when your, your system is actually on site. And that's yeah. what you want to be doing, right? I completely agree, and and I think on that contracting point, I would just echo what you've said. It it, it always takes longer than uh, than initially expected, so allow time for that. Obviously, if a fund is involved, allow time for them to review and ensure they're comfortable with the contract as well. I think it always helps to start with the heads of terms just to get the the commercial deal down on the page before you move on to the um onto the contract and the detail of the the legal documents. Um, but no, I think that's a it's a great top tip. <laughs> Um, and one which I haven't really spoken about so far is about system warranty. Um, so the system warranty is really crucial to the long term revenues. and It's also crucial to the bankability. And you need to have that uh, written within your contract with your aggregator that they will operate your system within your warranty and they will stick to it. And having kind of regular reviews around that may that might be annual or it might be more uh, more regularly. But I think um it's not to be underestimated and if you want to sell your system on at some point you need it to have a decent warranty still in place and being able to track that performance is is really important that that's a really good point robin and it's really nice to hear um you know a, a sort of aggregator making that point if you like you know recognizing the importance of the system warranty um and 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 the importance of um of that being reflected in the contract in, a, in an accurate way yeah I think it's important to be transparent and upfront and give your aggregator the warranty as early as possible so they can make sure their systems will dispatch the asset um, correctly and you know model do all the modeling that is required to make sure whatever service they put your system into will be within the warranty and make adjustments to their control systems if need be um, and then the final practical point was to be able to track the performance of the asset, both in terms of those warranty metrics, so things like throughput, um, but also in terms of the, the the profit and loss that you're making out of it. Um, and aggregators should be providing some sort of platform so you can query the data from your asset 
And so there is a lot of transparency between what they're doing with your asset and you can be happy with it. Yeah, that's a really that's a really um, interesting point. Um, and, I, and I suppose it's important that that then flows through to the contract and, and the contract's very clear on how reporting will work. You know, what will the format be? What will the, the frequency be? Um, yes. And indeed also that that portal access is documented in there and the basis on which that portal access is being provided. It's crucial that your aggregator has uh, a very good account manager that you can speak to, who can raise any queries and, and get your, your questions answered as quickly as possible so that you can be really confident with the way that your aggregator is dispatching your asset. That's fantastic. I mean, I think that the, the key thing there, and I, I suppose it's been a key theme throughout this podcast in terms of some of the th- points we've been discussing is that transparency piece. And, and that's what this comes back to. Um, so, Robin, thank you very much. That's been so, so helpful. Um, we really appreciate you you sharing your, your thoughts and your experience on this. Um, <laughs> thank you. And thank you to you all for listening. Um, if you do have any questions, please do get in touch. Um, otherwise, we hope you will tune into the next podcast in this series.